Warning to the third of our commands from the imperatives of Jesus and from God. Remember the first was from the Father himself, and that was what? Listen to him. And last week, it was what? Repent and believe. So it brings us to follow me, one of his earliest commands. Following. Following social media today, what does it mean? Well, I'm not much of a social media follower, some of you are, but I understand that it means to subscribe to the opinions, the beliefs, the ideas, and the teachings of another person, basically, to some degree or another. Sometimes it's just to agree with them that they're very popular. (laughs) Uh, It also means to subscribe or to, quote, to like somebody's account or homepage and to receive notifications that that person puts on the page and creates and posts what they call news feeds. And there's usually not much news there. But when you look at the top Instagram accounts today, the names to me are unrecognizable. You may know them. I don't. Number one, Cristiano Ronaldo is a Portuguese footballer who plays for Manchester United. I know about Manchester United. 551 million subscribers, and he's first on Facebook with 156 million. Amazing. And I didn't even know his name until I looked it up. Second is another. He's an Argentinian footballer who plays for Paris Saint-Germain and used to be at Barcelona. Lionel Messi, 432 million, and he is fifth on Facebook with 105 million. We're talking about millions of people. These together have almost a billion subscribers. Number three, Selena Gomez, Latino musician and actress from our own Grand Prairie, 381 million. But folks, the clan, the Kardashian clan, the Kardashian-Jenner clan has them all beat when you put them together. One and a half billion accounts. Isn't that amazing? When you look at Facebook, number one is Cristiano Ronaldo, but number two, I get a chuckle out of this. It's None other than, with 132 million subscribers, Mr. Bean. (laughs) Number three is Shakira, Colombian singer, 115 million. And then number four is the controversial actor, Will Smith. When you look at the Twitter accounts, it's a different kind of uh, list. It's not so much entertainers and people that are popular in that respect. Mostly politicians and businessmen and some entertainers. But number one, you might be surprised to know, but probably not, because this helped him win his first election. Barack Obama with 133 million, followed by Elon Musk with 129 million, and then we get into the popular culture with Justin Beamer. Trump is still number eight, and Joe Biden is coming up slightly behind him, number 56. I will be glad to tell you that today, Gamble Street Baptist Church has multiplied its subscribership on YouTube in the last two and a half years tenfold. We now have 764 subscribers. But that's quite an improvement. My question is this, in today's world, how popular would Jesus be? How many followers would he have? Or would he, because some of his 
principles and teachings are very unpopular in culture today, would his account be canceled or suspended by cancel culture? Or would it reflect his true significance? You know, in, in 2013, Time didn't do a poll, it didn't do a survey, it did an algorithmically generated report looking at all the influences that it could determine from all of history from 6,000 years, the most significant personalities in all of history, and you will not be surprised to know that they determined that the number one was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Number two, who do you think it might have been? A Frenchman from the early 19th century, who would it have been? Napoleon. After him, Muhammad, and then an English poet by the name of William, Bill Shakespeare. Then Lincoln, then Washington, the apostles Paul and Peter come in 34th and 65th. There's not a single person in the top hundred that is alive today. It makes me wonder in another hundred years if anyone will even know Lionel Messi's name and who will remember the Kardashians. You know, Jesus was a rock star in his day. If they had had Facebook, he would have had probably millions on it. You know, John the Baptist was very popular in his own right. When he preached, all of Judea came out, everyone from Jerusalem. They came from the whole Jordan district, and yet Jesus in his early Judean ministry became more popular than John so that people stopped going to John and started coming to Jesus. And then he went to Galilee, and the multitudes poured in because of his healing miracles and because of his compelling words. All Judea, all Galilee came to him. They came from as far away as Jerusalem, 85 miles away, and that was a long way to walk in those days, and it still is today. They came from further away, 40 to 55 miles from away from Idumea to the southeast of there. It was an international movement. They came from across the Jordan, Mark tells us, but Matthew tells us from all Syria. They came from the west, from the Phoenician coast, from Tyre, 35 miles away, and Sidon, 50 miles away. And the evil spirits themselves then proclaimed when they saw him. They fell down and they said, you're the son of God. And he had to tell them, shut up, don't tell anybody. Before the parable of the sower, he asked his disciples to find a boat so that he could get into it because he was so crowded. And he had to teach from off the shore, offshore teaching. And when he taught in the temple daily, later, we find people clinging to his every word because they were astonished. During his late Judean ministry, the crowds, the multitudes came with him in the the day of the, of course, the uh, feast of the the, uh, unleavened bread to prepare for the Passover. And they hailed him, Hosanna, the one who is Savior. They proclaimed him the new David. And the children clamored in the temple so loudly that the Pharisees said that he should shut them up. And you remember what he said, if they shut up, what will happen? Even the stones will speak. And as they listened to him teach in the temple, people hung on every word. And they were astonished at the authority of his speaking. He was a rock star. This all had a very small beginning, though. 
began, we know, with just 12. And if you look at John's gospel at the beginning in Judea, there are five that are identified there. Andrew and another disciple, we don't know his name, but we think that it was probably John that wrote the account. They followed him. And then later, Andrew brought his brother, Simon. He wasn't Peter then. Jesus saw him and he said, I'm going to change your name. It's going to be Cephas, which is to say Peter. And then they returned, apparently returned home and went back to work. But at the same time, Jesus prepared to go to Galilee and he saw a man by the name of Philip. And he looked at him, and this is where we find it first. He said to him, follow me. And Philip then went and found his friend Nathaniel, that we also know as Bartholomew. And when Bartholomew saw him, he said, how, do you, how did you know about me when Jesus told him that he'd saw, seen him under the fig tree? And he was amazed, and he proclaimed him to be the Son of God, the King of Israel. So then Jesus went into Galilee, and he took another dramatic step. He met some of those that he had seen before, and he saw them by the seashore. And then he took them to the next level, and he said, I want you now to leave home and to follow me along the road. And he called Peter and Andrew in Matthew, the fourth chapter, and he told them to follow him explicitly. And he commanded James and John to leave the boat. A little bit later in Matthew, the ninth chapter, we have a fifth name added here, which gives us a total of actually seven. He sees Matthew at the tax collector's booth, the son of Alphaeus by the name of Levi. And we come then to Matthew, the 10th chapter, and we see that he has 12. I want to talk about the two accounts very briefly of his calling those in, uh, in Galilee. In Matthew, the fourth chapter, he calls the four fishermen. Now, as Jesus was walking along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and he saw them casting nets into the sea. For you see, they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat mending their nets with their father Zebedee. And immediately, without hesitation, he called them. And at once they left their boat. They left their father in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. You see, this was not the first encounter for them, so I don't think that they were totally taken by surprise. But now what Jesus does with them is he takes them to the next level and he commands them. In fact, he says to, to, to Peter the, and, and to Simon Peter and to Andrew, the command is very abrupt. The word there is doite. It is an adverbial kind of interjection. It basically says, come here, <laughs> come here. And then when they left immediately, the word that is used there followed. It says, they then followed him along the way. I think that at this point, they did not really, really know what they were getting into, how radical a change this would be. Later, they discovered what it meant. For when Jesus then encounters the rich young ruler, and he tells the rich young ruler, because he knew that the riches stood between him and the young fellow, he said, go and sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor. And then once you have done that, then you can come and follow me. And we know what happened. The young man went away very sad because he had great wealth. It is then in the discourse that follows that Peter has an aha moment. And he says, wow, 
Lord, you know what? We've left everything to follow you. And I think that's when it really strikes them. Mm. When we look at the call of the tax collector, it's after the healing of the paralytic that was lowered in the house from the roof in Capernaum. And Jesus went on from there. That's a very simple account. And he saw a man by the name of Matthew, and we do know that this is Levi, also the son of Alphaeus. And he was sitting in the tax collector's booth. And very simply, Jesus looked at him and he said, follow me. Follow me. And the word that he uses there is, come with me along the road. And without a word, without hesitation, Matthew got up and followed him. This is more abrupt. Uh, the, The apparent situation is Matthew has seen him walking around and teaching and performing miracles. He hasn't seen him before. He's made no commitment to follow him. And Jesus walks up to him like I walk up here to Nathan, and I say, come on, follow me. Not expecting it. And what did he do? Nathan, you going to go with me? (laughs) Can you imagine that? Here's Matthew, who is a tax collector, who serves the Roman government. He gets his income from taxing those fishermen, like Peter and James and John, who have a lot of animus against him. And he's going to join this ragtag group of fishermen and farmers who are following a carpenter from that hick town, Nazareth. And on top of it, he comes to find out later that Simon the Zealot is strongly opposed to tax collectors. Can you imagine the alarm that must have run through him like electricity? And yet he did what? There was something compelling about the voice and the person and the character of this man, Jesus. And he got up, and he followed him along the way. You see, his response was like the others. It was immediate. They all accompanied him, accompanied him along the way. The meaning of the words here I've already described. The first command, come here, is really an adverbial kind of interjective. It, it simply means, come here. And then the other one is, follow me along the way. But the, the meaning is the same. It, it, it meant there's a sense of urgency about this. You see, I have come to proclaim the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is near. And it's time for you to follow. And the same response was given by all of the disciples. They akuolethod. They followed him along the way. And the verb is an aorist. It meant that they followed with the intensity and the resolve to finish the job, even though, oh, by the way, they didn't know all it was going to involve. The purposes of this call, I think, are found in many other passages, and I want to cover them very, very quickly. I find about five purposes that Jesus had in his issuing this call. The first is to build, to build his kingdom. So he calls them to be gatherers and harvesters. So when he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, that's basically what he's saying when he tells them to pray for the harvesters and to look under the fields because they're white unto harvest. He calls them to be kingdom builders in terms of being witnesses because later he says to them, you're going to wait into Jerusalem until the Spirit comes upon you and then you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to give the testimony of what has happened in my life. You're going to testify to my death, burial, and resurrection, and you're going to testify to my glorification. Be my witnesses, and you're going to harvest souls. 
And as a part of that, then kingdom building, you're going to be disciple makers. And he tells them before he then ascends, he says, therefore, as you are going into all nations, wherever you go, and every walk of life, you're to do what? You're to make disciples. To be kingdom builders. That's why he called them. Secondly, he called them to accompany him and to imitate him. We find this on the mountain when he then calls them then as the twelve to be his, quote, apostles. And he gives them four purposes. He called them so that they might be with him, to be companions, to encourage and support him, to walk with him along the way, but also so that he might be with them. And to be proclaimers, to go out and to preach the good news of the kingdom, and to be healers. He called them to do as he had done, and also to free the oppressed, to be liberators, to set the captives free, just as he had been called upon to do through the word of God by Isaiah, to accompany him and imitate him in those things. To build a kingdom, to be with him and to imitate him, and to love, and to love. In John 15, he said, you didn't call me, I did what? I called you. And I call you now, friends, and because of that, what I want you to do is this. I want you to do what I said, we see two chapters earlier, to love one another. To love one another because you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and because you obey the law and you love your neighbor as yourself. To love and to abide in my love. He tells them in John 15. And if you abide in my love, then you glorify the Father and you'll bear much fruit. He wanted them to build a kingdom. He wanted them to go with him and to imitate his actions. And he wanted them to be lovers. Lovers of humans, not just soul harvesters. And then he called them to serve. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. And you know at the first Lord's Supper, he did what? In John's Gospel, in the 13th chapter, we're told that he washed their feet. And when he had finished, he looked at them like, okay, don't you know what this is all about? You call me teacher and Lord, and for so I am, because I am your Lord and teacher. But I've washed your feet. And so therefore, you ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should follow. Serve. He told them this when he talked about the sheep and the goats. And remember what he said to the sheep. He said, because you have served the least of these brothers of mine, when the king sees you coming, he is going to say this to you, come, come, come into the kingdom which has been prepared for your inheritance because you have been obedient. And there was a fifth purpose, and that was to do the works that he did and yet to do even greater works than these. Today, friends, what does that mean to us? It means that Christ followers today can influence millions of people in an instant. We have the capability to make a a worldwide and global impact if we intend to do so, for better or for worse. There's some blessings that come from following Him. One is clear, eternal life. Whoever leaves everything for him, he says, and for the gospel's sake, will receive eternal life. He says this after the encounter with the rich young ruler. And someday we're told in Revelation 19 that we are going to be invited to the heavenly banquet and the command is going to be what? Come, come now and gather around the banquet of the great God. And the same verb is used there as the verb that Jesus used when he looked at Peter and when he looked at Andrew and he said, Doite, come, 
We have the invitation. Another blessing is that we receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus, on the great feast day of the, uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles and Booths, He stood in the temple and He said, Come, all of ye, come, if ye are what? Thirsty and drink. What did He mean by that? You see, the promise is, as He said to the Samaritan woman, the promise is, therefore, if you drink, out of you will flow rivers of living water. And then John explains what this means very clearly. He says, what it means is that they would receive the Spirit, which had not yet been given, but would come at His glorification. And then there's another blessing. We are to walk in His light. Whoever follows me, Jesus said in John the 8th chapter, whoever follows me, whoever comes after me, will not walk in darkness, but will forever walk in the light. And then finally, He says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, there is a promise of rest and renewal. Friends, are you tired? Are you tired on one side, from the liberal side and the pagan side and the worldly side of hearing cancel culture and all of its political correctness and all of the misinformation and the white noise that distorts the message of the gospel? Are you tired on the other side, on the right side, of hearing people making religion nothing more than politics? Are you tired of denominational officials who may do things that are legally, probably, right, possibly, but ethically unacceptable and mm, maybe even morally questionable? Not just in our denomination, but others. The world looks at us and they look at prosperity gospel shepherds who fleece their flock. They look at browbeating theologians that teach a cold theology without compassion on the other side. They look at some pastors who then have put on sheep's clothing, but they enter into the congregation as ravenous wolves and they commit morally reprehensible acts. And the world looks at the church and they say, I don't want that. Well, folks, I don't either. I don't want the left side over here, and I don't want the far right side over there. No, in the morning, when I rise, in the morning, when I rise, you know what it says. Do what? Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. I don't want all that the world offers. Just give me Jesus. And when I lay down to die, when I lay down to die, just give me Jesus. Are you tired? Are you weary of all the white noise of society? and people that call themselves religious, that have forgotten that when Jesus said, follow me, it wasn't just follow, it was this. It was follow me. You see, it's about me. Follow me. There's a hard call to discipleship. Some of, it took, some of them took it too lightly. One disciple said, Lord, I will follow you anywhere. And he said, but don't you understand this? I don't have a place to lay my head. Another disciple said, well, you know, I've got family concerns. And he looked at him and he said, 
<laughs> go preach the kingdom. Another said, well, I need to delay because I've, I've got business, and I, he's looking over his shoulder. And Jesus said what? He said, no one, after committing himself to the plow and taking the handle on it, that looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, the cost of discipleship in following Jesus is high. As he said to the rich young ruler, nothing should stand in between him and Christ. He told his disciples, whoever does not take up his cross is not worthy of following me. The irony of this hard call, the irony of the hard call that was sung by the choir this morning, if anyone will come after me, let that person deny himself or herself and take up his or her cross daily and then follow me. There's a hard call to discipleship. Jesus gave this right after he had predicted that he was going to suffer and die in Jerusalem. The irony of this hard call is that at the end of Jesus's ministry, as he looks at Peter by the sea, and he tells Peter how he's going to die. And after he's described that, then he looks at Peter and he says, what? Follow me. And then when Peter then asks questions about what's going to happen to John, Jesus looks at him and says, don't worry about John. Don't worry about John. That's not your problem. Follow me. You see, this was a call too far for too many. It was too radical for many. You know, after the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, it says that many began to abandon him because his sayings were too hard. And he looked at his disciples and said, well, you're going to leave me too. And you know what Peter said, Lord, where then shall we go? For only you have the words of eternal life. At the triumphal entry, friends, the multitudes clamored and they proclaimed Hosanna in the highest. He was the rock star. The multitude, it says literally in there. And then at the end of the week, the same word is used. The multitude then demanded that he be silenced forever. The most popular person of his day. The most significant human figure in all of history experienced history's worst imposition of cancel culture. But you know what? He had the last word. He would not be silenced. By his victorious resurrection and ascension, today his word still echoes a very clear and clarion call. Come, follow me. So how do we apply this? Three very quick things. This is the next logical step after listen to him and repent and believe. In repentance, we turn and we change from the old way to the new way. We seek a new direction. Follow me. And we believe. We repent and we believe. We don't just believe in intellectual facts. We put our trust in the one who says, follow me. Secondly, we're, we're called like the disciples to join Jesus along the way. You see, his reason is found in John 17. He says, Father, you have given me this, this, these disciples. They don't belong to the world anymore. They belong to you. But whatever belongs to you belongs to me. And whatever belongs to me belongs to you. So they belong to us together. And my purpose is to do this. It's to bring them and together and to make them one with you. That was his goal. That's why he called them, to make them one with the Father and to make us one with one another. So this means this, second point, if we follow Jesus, we follow the Father. You see, he did only what the Father did, and he obeyed only what the Father told him to do. So if we follow Jesus, we follow the Father. 
If we follow Jesus, we're children of the kingdom of God, men and women, boys and girls. And you know, just like Jesus and God do not have grandchildren, they also don't have stepchildren. We are all equal, honorably in the sight of God, and He loves all of us. Left and right, regardless of race, regardless of background, regardless of nationality, regardless of political opinion, He loves us all, and He calls us to be one. And as a part of this being one, this second point, we're to follow Him. And as we follow Him, then we ought to do so in such a way that when people see us, they follow us, and they follow Jesus. If we follow Jesus, we follow the Father. If people follow us, they ought to be following Jesus. And Paul very boldly said this, and we ought to be able to say it as Paul says, what you have seen, what you have learned, what you have heard in me and from me, practice those things. Do what I do, because when you see what I'm doing, I'm doing my best to be like Jesus. And then the God of peace will be with you. And as a part of this second point in being made one with God, we follow the Father and people follow us. We reap the benefits that He talks about in John 17. You see, Jesus' promises in that chapter become ours because we're one with the Father. His joy becomes ours. The Father's word that He has given to us becomes ours. And we receive the Father's glory. You see, we are one with the Father and the kingdom of God when we follow Jesus. And the last point, I think, of application is when we follow Him today, we obey His commands. We obey every one of His commands to the point when we come together at the communion table. We do what He commanded us to do, to follow Him by remembering Him. This do in remembrance of me. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we do come to you sometime weary and heavy laden, sometimes distracted by the noise of the world, and sometimes confused by even what some of our, quote, religious leaders teach and the way they act. But our prayer is that you will dissipate the fog, that you will clear away the white noise, that when people hear the gospel message this morning or whenever they hear it, that they will not be distracted by the dissonance of disobedience, but they will hear your clarion message from your son, Jesus Christ, who very, very simply says, follow me, follow me along the way. And our prayer this morning is that someone who has heard this message, somebody who has heard the convicting and powerful words of your son, Jesus Christ, will do just that and come and follow him along the way and be made one with you and have the promise of eternal life in your kingdom. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.